Well, I will open us up with a word of prayer and then I'm going to teach first and then we'll have our time for prayer at the end. Let's pray. Father, we do lift up Diego and Kathy and others who are battling cancer and hard Father, hard times uh, for their family. We, we ask that you be with them, that you give them strength and encouragement. And most of all, Father, that they will just rest in your peace and your comfort, that they will uh, be able to really feel the sense of your presence. We know that you don't ever leave us. And we just pray that they would have an overwhelming sense of your presence and calmness and peace during this hard time. We do ask that you would intervene and if it be your will, Father, that you would provide miracles in those situations. We know you still do miracles today and Father, we we lift them up and we plead with you to intervene. And nonetheless, we pray your will be done. We ask your blessing upon our time together this morning, Father, that uh, as we open up your word, that you would speak to us, Father, individually, specifically, encourage, um, admonish, uh, Father, just bring forth the message that you would have each one of us here, and may we apply it to our lives and be, uh, Father, stronger in faith because of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you remember, we're still in Philippians. You can be turning there. This is my last week with you. We're still going to be in Philippians chapter 4. If you remember what we've been looking at, Paul had told the Philippians to follow his example in pursuing holiness. He had given them several motivations, some reasons to do this. And then he began chapter 4 with the imperative command to stand firm in their faith. So I want to begin this morning by reading chapter 4, verse 1 again. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul says, Therefore, because of what he had previously told them, remember what he had said, he said, told them to follow in his, his example, his pursuit of holiness, not the false teachers, especially the ones who had said you don't have to pursue holiness, just believing was enough. It's okay to look like the world, act like the world. We're saved, we're okay. That's what they were saying. Paul says, don't follow them, follow me, follow my example. And he ends with telling them to stand firm. The only way to keep from falling into false teaching, from slipping back into the immoral culture that they were called out of, they would have to stand firm. A strong faith is a stable faith. We talked about how important it was to have a strong, rock-solid faith. Paul then goes on to fire off seven important principles that he considered important in order for them to be able to have a strong and stable faith. We looked at three of them last week. This morning we'll try to get through the remaining four. One of the things you have to deal with as a substitute teacher is always the time limitations. I don't know when I'll get the opportunity to teach again, so I don't want to leave you hanging, so I want to finish this, which means that we'll have to go through some of this rather quickly. And we 
won't exposit every one of these points to the full extent. I'm fully aware that each one of the points I've been making could be a whole lesson by itself. But what we want to do is to highlight the remaining verses and the four remaining principles to practice. We Remember, we had seven principles, and we have four left. Principles to practice in order to be a rock-solid Christian, immovable, uncompromising, in a sin-stained world in which we have been called out of. Last week, we saw the first three, which were the need to cultivate and maintain unity, the joy of the Lord, and an attitude of gracious humility. Today we move on to verse 5. And I'm going to start in the middle of verse 5 and read through verse 6. And we're going to see here that in order to have a rock-solid faith, the fourth principle we need to practice is to cultivate and maintain a confident dependence on the Lord. To cultivate and maintain a confident dependence on the Lord. Let me read, beginning in the middle of verse 5. It says, The Lord is at hand... Do not be anxious for anything. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious for anything. This is a command. It's an imperative. It's not a suggestion. Do not be anxious about what? Anything. I'm glad he was talking to the church at Philippi and not us, right? (laughs) Is anxiety a problem in our culture? It's an understatement. I looked up some statistics. There are over 40 million people in the U.S. diagnosed with some type of anxiety disorder. We, we worry about everything. We worry about finances, how we're going to pay the bills, put the kids through college, save enough for retirement. Am I going to have enough money to last in retirement? We worry about health care and illnesses. We worry about relationships. We worry about the state of the country and politics. We get anxious when we fly on a plane or or if we're in a crowd of people. We worry about what people think of us. And I could go on and on and on. As I was surfing the internet reading just cultural things on this, I found on the website WebMD a statement that said, we're not the USA anymore, we're the United States of worry. And people want a remedy. The drug industry that treats anxiety and depression makes billions and billions of dollars. It's literally a cash cow to the pharmaceutical companies. The prevalence of anxiety and worry is undeniable, and the demand for anxiety medications, self-help seminars, and books tell me that people are desperate to find a cure. But we're looking in all the wrong places. But here in a 2,000-year-old book, we have the answer. Paul has the audacity to shred through it all with a simple and straightforward command to be anxious for nothing. And he's going to tell us why and he's going to tell us how. Look again at verse 6. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious for anything. Some versions say the Lord is near. The word translated at hand or near can be used to speak of chronological time, as in the Lord is close to returning. It can also be rendered near or close by in proximity. The context leads me to believe that Paul is referring more to the Lord's presence. He is close. It's sad, though, but sometimes when Christians face trials and difficulties, they seem to forget that the Lord is by their side. Now I know they acknowledge the truth, 
but it isn't internalized. And I say that because if they did, they wouldn't be so quick to be afraid, to be anxious, to be worried. I admit, it's not easy to do. Even the disciples had problems with this. Do you remember when Jesus was arrested and the disciples were left alone? Do you remember how scared Peter was? When the servant girl confronted him, what did he do? Denied him. Not just once, but several times. He denied even knowing the Lord. Contrast that to a few hours before when he was in the garden and the Roman soldiers came to arrest Jesus. What did he do then? He was ready to take on the whole army by himself. He jumped up and slashed off the ear of the high priest's servant. Now, why was he so bold there and so weak and timid a few hours later? Earlier, Jesus was standing right beside him. And remember what Jesus had just done. Jesus had just spoken a few words and the whole group of soldiers and the Jewish leaders fell back onto the ground. No wonder Peter had the courage to jump up and slash off the ear. But what a difference a few hours made. A few hours later, Peter was alone, he was scared, and he even denied knowing Jesus. And I think you can see why. He certainly didn't feel his presence beside him at that point, did he? I think this is a really important principle to remember. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious for anything. If we really believe and can internalize this truth that the Lord is with us, why would we ever be anxious? But the sad truth is, we don't always live like we believe this. Why is that? If the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, is with us, if we know and believe he loves us, that he's protecting us, that he wants only the best for us, why would we ever be anxious for anything? Maybe there are a few of you who have perfected this, but I, for one, still get anxious occasionally. So what can we do about this? First off, I think with all sin, we need to acknowledge, first of all, that it's wrong. Sometimes I don't think we do that. We just go about getting worried and anxious and we don't realize that it's wrong. But it is a sin and we shouldn't do it and we don't have to do it. Do you remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? Turn back to Matthew chapter 6. I want to read a passage where Jesus talks about not being anxious. Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 25 through 30. Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? What did Jesus call them? Men of little faith. Why? Because they were anxious. Have you really given much thought to that? When we are anxious, 
just God is looking down and saying, ye of little faith. What was behind, what was at the root of their anxiousness? It was a lack of confident dependence on the Lord. That tells me that anxiety is an issue of faith. A stable, rock-solid Christian has a confident dependence upon the Lord. A Christian who gets anxious a lot, who worries and frets, is not a very stable Christian. So Paul, as he tells the Philippians not to be anxious, he gives them and he gives us the reason why not to in the same breath. Before he tells them not to be anxious, he tells them why. Because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. The Lord's right beside you. There's a lot that goes on in that. That means the Lord knows what's going on. The Lord cares. He's in control. He loves you. All of that is wrapped up in this statement that the Lord is at hand. We need to remind ourselves of this truth, that the Lord is at hand. He's in our presence. He's not far away. He's not unconcerned about what's going on in our lives. He not only tells us why not to be anxious, he's going to tell us what to do instead of being anxious. The rest of verse 6 says, but instead of being anxious, do what? Pray. Which leads us to the fifth principle to practice in order to have a rock-solid faith. Do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So we learn here that another characteristic of a rock-solid faith is a grateful prayer life. We need to cultivate and maintain a grateful prayer life. Now in this verse, Paul mentions prayer, but he does it in a specific context. This is not an exhaustive text on prayer. There are many other scriptures, such as the Lord's Prayer, where he taught the disciples how to pray, or the high priestly prayer in John 17. You could study these to gain much more knowledge and theology on the discipline of prayer. But here, in this context here, his thought is about the admonition to not be anxious. And so he says, in contrast to that, in order not to sin in that way, turn over your requests, your supplications, the things that are troubling you, to the Lord. Paul is saying this is the solution to worry and anxiety. This is the prescription. You want a life free from worry and anxiety, this is how you obtain it. Turn to God in grateful prayer. Think about this. Why do you worry? Have you ever actually sat down and contemplated what it is at the root of your worry and anxiety? I think it boils down to, at its root, most of the time it comes down to our feeling in some way that our needs are not going to be met. Try as we might, we cannot control everything, can we? We want to. Many times it's not what we desire. That is why Paul says to turn to God. Bring your petitions to the God of the universe who is in control of everything in our life who has promised to provide everything we need according to his riches and glory. Peter said almost the exact same thing in 1 Peter 5, 7. He said, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's beautiful imagery, isn't it? Unloading all of your burdens, whatever it is, lay it all on him. And it's all-inclusive. Paul says, do not be anxious for anything. Peter said, cast how much of your anxiety? All. 
And the way we do this is through prayer. It doesn't specifically say this, but I think it's implied that we do this by naming our burdens, our anxieties. We specifically pray for them individually by name. I don't think generalities are sufficient. It says, let your request be known to God. That's specific. Now, does God need for us to tell him what our needs are? He knows already. Our prayers are our disclosure to ourselves that we are depending on Him. So we see the prescription to our anxiety is to cast it all before the Lord in prayer, recognizing that we can't fix it, that we need His help. But not just any type of prayer, grateful prayer. Prayer with thanksgiving is the way Paul phrases it. And this is an important part of the prescription that sometimes I think we overlook. On this point, commentator William Hendrickson said, Prayer without thanksgiving is like a bird without wings. Such a prayer cannot rise to heaven, can find no acceptance with God. And as I was studying this, I have to be honest, I hadn't really thought that much about being grateful in my prayer when I was asking for things, when things were troubling me and I went to the Lord to lay them upon Him, that I would, would should be grateful as I do that. We should not go to God doubting, blaming, questioning. A spirit of thankfulness helps us to come before Him in humble submission, acknowledging His sovereignty. It requires that we are willing to subject our desires to His perfect will. So what does this look like in our prayers? I came across a quote by Spurgeon where he speaks to this. Listen to what he says. He said, Lord, I am poor. Let me bless you for my poverty. And then, O Lord, will you not supply all my needs? This is the way to pray, Spurgeon says. Lord, I am ill. I bless you for this affliction, for I am sure that it means some good thing to me. Now I Be pleased to heal me, I beseech you, Lord. I'm in great trouble, but I praise you for the trouble, for I know that it contains a blessing, though the envelope is black-edged. Lord, help me in my trouble. It's not an easy thing to do. But there's also a promise attached to this admonition. Look again at verse 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What's the blessing? Peace. Who doesn't want peace? And this is no ordinary peace. There are some important traits about this peace that comes from casting your anxieties on God. One of those is that it is not a human peace. It's the peace of God. It's a divine peace. Its origin is in the peace of God. God experiences no anxiety. He is infinitely joyful, infinitely at peace. So what better place for your peace to originate than from God? Remember the words of Jesus in John 14, 27. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And then he starts, goes on, Do not let your heart be troubled. This peace from God is, It's divine. It's not only divine, but it's also beyond comprehension. What did Paul say? It was what kind of peace it was? One that surpasses all understanding. We live in the same world with unbelievers. 
we have the same problems as unbelievers. We both deal with sick kids and aging parents, the high cost of living, political unrest, the threat of war, job troubles, relationship problems, rebellious teenagers, terminal diseases, and all the rest. And yet through all the storms of life, we can stay calm, peaceful, even joyful. And the people of the world look at us and are amazed because they cannot understand it. It's a divine peace. It's a peace that transcends all human understanding. Paul goes on to say it's a guarding peace. Verse 7 says, The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds. I think this shows where the root of anxiety is. The modern day psychiatrist and those who treat anxiety would say that a lot of times they would say that it's a disease. And I'm not saying there's never a physical cause for anxiety. I'm sure on occasion there is. But we tend to lump it all together. Physical causes are the minority. They are not the norm. The accepted thought in our culture is alcoholism, drug addiction, anxiety disorders, depression. They're all illnesses and diseases. But that thought in general is in contradiction to Scripture. Anxiety, generally speaking, is a spiritual problem that comes from the heart and the mind. Paul says here that bringing our anxieties before the Lord in grateful prayer will be met with a divine peace that surpasses all understanding and will guard your hearts and minds. I looked up the word guard. It's a military term that the word garrison is derived from. You know what a garrison is? A garrison would be a detachment of soldiers. And if you remember, Philippi was a Roman colony. And they would have had garrisons of soldiers stationed around it to protect the city. In the same way, Paul says, the peace of God protects your hearts and your minds from the pressures, the anxieties and stress that this life brings upon you. That's the byproduct of casting your anxieties before God in grateful prayer. A peace that is divine, supernatural, one that defies all understanding, and one that will guard your heart and your mind, protecting you from future anxiety. So let's read verse 8. We'll see the sixth principle we need to practice in order to have a rock-solid faith. Verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The principle derived from this verse is that in order to have a rock-solid faith, we need to cultivate and maintain godly thinking. I may have told you this before. Before I was a Christian, I used to read a lot of motivational books. One of the common themes you would read if you are familiar with this type of writing is a line that goes something like this. You are what you think. You've heard that. The point being to try to get you to think positive about yourself, to imagine the possibilities. And we know this taken at face value is humanistic. But underneath this thinking, there is an underlying truth. What we think about, what we feed our minds on is very powerful. The mind is the most amazing computer ever created. The power of the mind is beyond our comprehension and we're learning something new about it all the time. And what our minds dwell on the way they are conditioned to think is important. 
couple of verses. Proverbs 23, 7. You know it. For as a man thinketh, so he is. Jesus said in Mark 7, That which proceeds out of a man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. Our thinking is important. Scripture backs that up. Paul knows this too, and he instructs us on what we are to think on. The reason he does this is because he knows that proper thinking is a very important aspect for a Christian in order to have a stable, rock-solid faith. In this verse, Paul uses the word dwell. He said dwell on these things. The word rendered dwell is an imperative which makes it a command, and it means much more than just passive thoughts. It can be rendered consider, calculate, Think over. Reflect on. I came across a quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones while reading. Martin Lloyd-Jones was not commenting on this particular passage, but what I read said he was talking about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Look at the birds. They don't sow, reap, or gather, and God takes care of them. Lloyd-Jones says, Christian faith is essentially thinking. Look at the birds. Think about them. Draw your deductions. Look at the grass. Look at the lilies of the field. Consider them. Spiritual stability is a result of how a person thinks. That's why Scripture tells us places like Romans 12, 2, to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your minds. In Colossians, we are told to set our minds on things above. So it becomes obvious that Scripture teaches there is a great correlation to proper thinking and spiritual stability. And Paul here lists several objects of our thought. He gives us specific things to think about. I'm just going to run through them again quickly for sake of time. He mentions truth. What is truth? God's Word is true. Jesus said, I am the truth. Have you ever known Christians who are obsessed with things like conspiracy theories and horoscopes and alien encounters and science fiction movies. Paul says we are to focus our thoughts on what we know to be true, what which, which would primarily be Scripture. We are to think about, meditate on, consider what is said about Scripture. He goes on to say things that are honorable. We should focus on what is honorable. The word means dignified. Older translations rendered it gravity. It means weighty. We are not to dwell flippantly, frivolously. We're not to treat everything like it's a joke. We're not to fill our minds with trivial things, but things that are worthy of awe and adoration. He mentions the word just. Think of things that are just. Speaks of balanced scales. It means we're not to meditate on how to beat the system. How to cut corners to get ahead. We are to have holy plans. Give thoughts on how we can be upright and fair. He goes on. He says pure. This speaks of holy. Holiness. Integrity. Chaste. This would apply to what forms of entertainment we choose. What we watch on TV. What we read. What we choose to look at on the internet. Men, you know the temptation here. No one knows what you're thinking about when you watch certain television shows or see pretty women at the beach. Our thoughts are one of the only virtues that we think we can hide from the rest of the world. And yet, 
Nothing escapes God. He's the only one that really matters. We are called not only to holy living, but to pure, holy thinking. He goes on and says, dwell on things that are lovely. This would be thoughts that center on things that are pleasing, agreeable, things that inspire love. The opposite would be things that are distasteful, foul. Elevated thoughts is what we should be thinking on, not raw, crude, or ugly thoughts. He says, commendable. Some versions render it of good repute, good reputation, spoken well of by others. And if that isn't enough, Paul ends with the all-encompassing phrase, if anything is excellent, if anything is praiseworthy, dwell on these things. If I left anything at all out, give your thoughts to these things. That's some list to live up to, isn't it? As I thought about this, I was convicted that many times I find myself dwelling on the negative. Dwelling on how bad the world's getting. How rampant sin is. How horrible the political system has become. How much time I spend on insignificant things. As Christians, we are commanded to train our thinking to center on truth, on Scripture, to hold our thoughts captive, to honorable, pure, lovely, excellent, praiseworthy things. This is central to our living righteously because what flows out of us is a direct result of what is inside us. As Christians, we are commanded to train our thinking to center on truth, on Scripture. To be rock-solid Christians, we need to control what we spend time thinking about. The last principle to practice to become a stable, rock-solid Christian that doesn't waver in our faith is found in verse 9. Verse 9 says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So here we see the climax of Paul's thoughts on what constitutes a strong and stable faith. And it's our need to cultivate and maintain a life disciplined to obeying God's Word. This verse is an integral part of having a strong, stable, rock-solid faith. And it's inseparable from the verse preceding it. We just looked at having the right thinking. Now Paul says we need to have the right doing. But you will never do right if you don't think right. They're inseparable. But in some ways it is possible to think right and not do right. I know Christians who are very intelligent and very knowledgeable about the Bible. They want to discuss the great theological truths and can hold their own with most scholarly people. And yet, when it comes to the practical implications of this in their own life, they fall way short. They're mean to their spouse. They don't seem to have joy. They're not compassionate. That shouldn't be. But it does happen. It does no good to intellectually believe in your mind that unity is important, but then when there's disunity, you never go and reconcile. You understand that the lack of joy is a constant battle 
or maybe with anxiety, you have a problem with anxiety, but if you never put these things into practice in your life, what have you accomplished? How can that be? How can a person come to church for all their life and still struggle with anger or being incompassionate? How can they be an expert on many Bible truths and never seem to have any joy? Pick your topic. It happens because the truths are not appropriated in their lives. It's just knowledge. We have to take all of these principles Paul gives us about having a strong and stable faith out of the realm of theory and put them into practice. That's what Paul says. Practice these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. The principles we hold to and believe come from learning, reading scripture, listening to others, sermons, Bible studies. Paul says what you have heard and seen in him, referring back to his first comments of following his example, and we do too. We have Christian mentors and examples and leaders. But the important part comes after this when he says, practice these things. And it's a true concept that we shouldn't have that much difficulty understanding. To be good at anything, it takes practice, doesn't it? I thought about sports. Some people are just more natural athletes than others, but one thing I know for sure, no one makes it to the top of their field without a lot of practice. You don't just wake up one day and you're the best basketball player at school. Wish it happens act like that, right? All professional athletes have stories of how they were the one in the gym first and the last one to leave how they lived and breathed their respective sport. They may have had potential, but they would never have reached it without a lot of practice. And it's true of us in our Christian walk. Each of us have different gifts, different abilities. We all have great potential to be rock-solid Christians. And we can and we should have strong, stable faith that can weather all the world can throw at us. But in order to reach this potential, we need to practice Not only things like prayer and Bible study and scripture memorization, we need to do those things, but we need to practice these things that Paul has been talking about too. All of the scriptures speak to us and give us things that we should and shouldn't be doing in our lives, and sometimes we pick and choose. Paul is saying, take them, listen to them, put them into practice in your life. I don't know who said it, I don't know whether I read it or what, but one of the sayings that became ingrained in me when I was going through chemo nine years ago, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and there was a saying that stuck with me when I was going through that, and it was this, something similar to this, it says, I now have the opportunity to live out my faith, to live out the truths that I know to be true. To not doubt that God knows what He's doing. That I can have joy in the middle of this trial. That I can really trust Him to provide the finances to get through this. And by His grace, I think I did all right. And this is one of the ways I try to encourage people who are going through a rough time in their marriage or difficulty, some type of difficult diagnosis, whatever it is. This is an opportunity for you to live out what you know to be true. To put into practice the things you know Scripture says, but now you really have an opportunity to put it into practice in your own life personally. 
And this is one of the ways that God helps us to practice these type things. He gives us opportunities. Some more than others. I would recommend that you don't wait until the trials come to start practicing. It would be better if you had a little practice before the big game gets here. It doesn't do any good to have a lot of head knowledge about all these truths that Paul shares with us to help us have a stable, rock-solid faith if we don't apply them. It's my prayer that as we have looked at them over the last couple of weeks that you've allowed the Lord to speak to you. The world we live in, the culture of which we are part, is diametrically opposed to everything the gospel stands for. It's sometimes outright hostile. Satan's no idiot, and he is a master at working under the radar, subtly eroding many Christians' faith because they are not stable. He loves to make us stumble, to destroy our lives, to destroy our witness. In order to have a rock-solid faith, to be solid in our faith, Christians need to follow Paul's admonitions and put them into practice in our daily lives. The things we've gone over. Paul has told us to practice unity. To practice rejoicing. To practice having gracious humility. To practice not being anxious, but being dependent upon God. To practice grateful prayer. To practice godly thinking. In essence, practice obeying Scripture. That's what he's saying. Take Scripture... And apply it to your life. Take it out of the realm of theory and put it into action in your life. And if we do this, we will have a stable, rock-solid faith. Immovable, uncompromising when everything else around us is in turmoil. And that's our goal. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our examples of men like the Apostle Paul. Thank you for all of our forefathers in the faith. May we continue to look to them, to follow their example in the faith. Father, to not be swept up by the culture in which we live as we witness many churches around us compromising when we see other Christians around us, compromising their faith. Father, may we be immovable. May we be stable and solid in our faith. Father, it is our prayer that if we need to be convicted in any of these areas, that your Holy Spirit would do that. And Father, that we would search our own hearts and our own lives and see where we might fall short. And that we would renew ourselves, Father, to putting into practice these things that we know to be true, that it would not just be head knowledge, Father, that we would put them into practice, therefore strengthening our faith, giving us a better walk closer to you. And Father, we would be unmoved in a compromising world. We'd be found faithful. Father, we ask all these things in the most gracious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.